Welcome to Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church. This is our morning Sunday school. Uh, today we're going to be looking at the doctrine of God and ethics, uh, and we're going to be looking at Shorter Catechism number four. Um, before we do that, let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us, but also we know ourselves, and uh, we don't know ourselves as well as we ought, nor do we know you as well as we ought. But as we learn about you, we learn about us. We learn about us. We know our need for you. Uh, bless us as we uh, endeavor to understand these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This summer, I think since May or so, we've been looking at ethics, right? And we've seen many different topics. Uh, and the few times I've been given an opportunity to talk, I've been looking at sort of what's behind ethics, the why of ethics. We've been examining humanity's moral nature and seeing all of our duties in the light of it. During the classes I've been teaching, I haven't focused on the what so much. That is, should gambling be permitted, right? All those kinds of what type questions. Rather, I've been focusing on the why of our approach to ethics. Why is there a peculiarly Christian ethic? Well, it's because it's wrapped up in our theology, right? Why is there a peculiar Christian ethic that distinguishes it from other ethics? In answering that question, I've been drawing your attention to our church's secondary standards in the Shorter Catechism. And we've looked at Westminster Shorter Catechism 2 and 3 when we were looking at sort of epistemology or, you know, how we know what we know. And also we looked at number three in terms of, you know, what we ought to do. I'm sure somewhere in there I've worked number one in as well. So let's take a moment and just recite Shorter Catechism 1 through 3. I'll ask the questions. You guys can responsively read the answers. They're on your handouts. Here we go. Shorter Catechism 1. What's the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 2. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? The Word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. 3. What do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Now, it's my contention in this class today that our theology illuminates our ethics. That is, what we believe about God, what we believe about humanity, what we believe about sin and Scripture, all of this illumines our ethics. Because of this, as a Christian ethic ought to be different, because of this, Christian ethics ought to be different than any ethics that are informed merely by natural law, rational speculation, or increasingly just the spirit of the age. Now, before we look at a peculiarly Christian view of God, that influences our ethics, it's worthwhile to examine some of the common views that are going to be held by your neighbors, or some of the common views that are held in the academy today. Uh, in 1927, there was a book penned, uh, sort of a symposium type of book. It's called My Idea of God, a Symposium of Faith. And it has 18 chapters in there, and they really carefully selected different representatives in the religious world to write chapters and explain, what's your idea of God? And so it's across, you know, different denominations, amongst different religious heritages and traditions. And in general, these conceptions of God break down into two categories. There are those that are objective, right, that are wrestling with the biblical revelation in terms of saying this is what Scripture says God is, 
and there's those that are subjective, right? They're rooted in experience. Now, I'm just going to summarize some of the titles and try to appreciate the titles for these pieces. On the objective side, we had from a Jewish author, God, the Eternal. From a Catholic author, the Living God. From a Southern Baptist, the Father Almighty. From another Baptist, what God is. Notice that all these titles are arguing for a claim that you could support clearly from Scripture. On the other hand, with the subjective authors, these are the titles they chose, and I want you to pay attention to the feel to them, and feel's the right word. What God means to me. That's by a Christian scientist. How I think of God. That's by a liberal Protestant. My conception of God, or my all God. Both of these titles were uh, from pantheistic authors, people who thought that we were somehow part of the divine. Notice how the titles highlight the author's interpretation of what they think God is. Now, I'd like you to imagine for a moment that you're a freshman college student, and your professor gives you this book, and you dutifully read through it, and you look at all these different conceptions of God. And then at the end, you're asked, who should I join, right? Who should I join? Which one of these groups would, would be best, right? Um, and let's assume that you don't Previous to that, you don't have any strong religious or philosophical bases for having any presuppositions on that. I get it. That's impossible. But nonetheless, we're going to imagine that world. What's the likely conclusion? The likely conclusion is you're going to throw your hands up, right? These are a lot of smart people. You know, they're dealing with all kinds of things. Some are dealing with the text of Scripture. Some of them are dealing with history in the text of Scripture. Some of them are dealing with modern psychology and sociology and economics and the text of Scripture or not, right? And you would feel like, wow, who, who am I to make a decision on these things? I can remember when I was a young man, uh, I know some of you are still putting me in that category, thank you. Um, but as a younger man, I remember the Lutheran theologian, Rod Rosenblatt, he said, what's someone to do in this situation? It's like you go to a British pub and you get a, a dartboard and you label each value, like 20 as, I don't know, an Episcopalian. And what, what, you, you label all the points with some religious flavor. And then you just go and you grab a dart and you toss it and hope for the best. Hey, I'm an Episcopalian. That's where the dart went, right? Um, the point is, is like, who can know these things? There's that sort of uncertainty that's very, very common in the culture. And such uncertainty of knowledge has a lot of aid. And, you know, we're kind of here. Uh, Immanuel Kant, you know, 1724 to 1804, he has this idea that, you know, there's two realms. There's the phenomenological realm. We've talked about this, I think, when we looked at number two. That is the realm of empirical experience. I can see it, I can taste it, I can touch it, I can smell it, right? All those kinds of things. If you have access to that, it's knowable, according to Kant. But he says all those other things, God, history, the good, what's excellent, these things are in the noumenal realm, and we don't have access to that, and so it's unknowable. And so that view has proven to be the basis for much modern thought. If you can't see, touch, taste, smell, or hear it, you can't know it. Now this idea, along with contributions, other contributions in philosophy, we don't have time to unpack that, um, it's been taken up by the academy and entitled social constructivism, or social constructionism. Uh, and this is, you know, largely where we're at today on many, many issues, okay? Uh, an author named Amy Quillian, she, uh, she says, gives us a definition that works. Social constructionism purports that our beliefs, ways of thinking, 
and values are not inherently, innately, or objectively given, but rather are constructed within the framework of social interaction with others. Our beliefs, our values, our ways of thinking, they're all born out of social interactions alone. Realities are socially constructed and constituted through language. Reality and knowledge defy objectification, but are rather a linguistic creation that arises in the domain of social interchange. So reality has to do with language and how you frame it. Um, now, I want to just throw out that this category can be useful, and I, I think that we'll see plenty of places where we're like, yeah, that, that holds true. Let's think about, uh, you know, the perfect female form. I know it's a weird one. Um, you know, supposedly the French during the 17th and 18th centuries, the attractive female was rather plump, maybe luscious, right? Those kinds of words we would use. Whereas today, in most cultures around the world, probably due to the proliferation of media, etc., many people assume that, well, thin is in, right? Now, what is it really there? Is there something, if you ask any husband that loves his wife regardless of her form, right? These aren't categories that we look at, right? But it's a thing in the culture. And, and you go look at social media and you look at young ladies and how they feel about their body form. It's, it, it, it's a thing, right? There's certainly the way we imagine society thinks about forms affects us. And of course, we know as Christians that that should not affect us to the extent that it often does. It's good to remind ourselves of the, you know, Proverbs 31:30, Charm is deceitful and beauty is in vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. But I think we can see that, that that's something that it's just cultural that, that has influenced the way people think about things. Other applications, perhaps. Uh, you know, what is considered old age? Right? As humans live longer than they did in previous ages. You know, I was an old man probably for three, four hundred years ago. But nowadays, some of you are like, hey, Phillips is pretty young, right? These are things that, yeah, as, as, our, as we live longer, our conception of what's old and young, that, that, that's certainly something that could be a social construct. Um, however, how far are we willing to take this idea, right? Many in the culture are willing to take it to mean anything that humans think of, right? Most recently, we've seen gender. Gender is a huge one. Well, it's just an idea about... Now, certainly, we need to admit there's a little bit of leeway there. Like, hey, you know, some, some people have different definitions. Can the, the woman work outside the house in a family, right? And there's some people, no, right? And these things change over time somewhat uh, in, in reference even to your biblical interpretation. But here's the big one. How about God? Is God a social construct, right? You hear it from people all the time. Well, if I was born in Baghdad, I'd be a Muslim, right? Now, as Christians uh, that are charged with bringing the gospel to every creature, we, we know that's not true because we say, well, we know there's Christians in Baghdad, right? We know that the gospel goes forth, and we are making along with, uh, well, God is making, using his people to make a church that has people from every tongue and tribe and nation. But you get the idea. Well, isn't God just merely a human imagining in a given historical context? Increasingly, that's sort of the thinking you'll run into amongst your friends and neighbors. So if God is socially constructed, he or she is merely a fad or folk medicine to be tried. 
Perhaps if Dr. Seuss were writing theology today, perhaps he would write this of the social constructionist's view of God. Try him, try her, you will see. You may like them in a tree. Um, it, it, it's very subjective and, and time-bound, right? Now, this frustration with defining God or... Uh, I don't know what I wrote there. This uh, frustration with defining God or this relative ease with which people define God on the basis of sociology is not new. Uh, there was a Greek poet named Simonides and he was asked by the king of Syracuse, what is God? And in response to that, Simonides says, uh, can I have a day to think about it? And when that day was over, Simonides asks for two days. And when those two days were over, he asked for four days. And he continued to double the number of days in which he desired to think of God before he could give an answer. Eventually, the king gets frustrated, and the king expresses his surprise, and he asks him, Simonides, what do you mean by this strange behavior? And the poet answered, the more I think of God, he's still the more unknown to me. Now, if we're only going to learn about God from creation, from natural revelation, uh, Simonides has come to the right conclusion. He's humbled. He stands in awe. The subject is too big for him. The time required to formulate an answer exceeds him, and we'll see why that's the case in a bit. God is ultimately unknow unknowable in fine detail if we are to describe him on the basis of creation alone. If we're to read creation and deduce what can be known about God, perhaps the best we can do, as the Greeks did, is take all of man's attributes and impute them to God, right? Magnify man's attributes, whether they're good or bad. For example, there's love that we see and witness and it's good. Well, the Greeks yeah, have Aphrodite and Aphrodite is the personification of love. Athena is the goddess of wisdom and so on. So in Greek thought, the gods were like humans, except they were immortal and more powerful. In the end, though, with the Greek gods, what you end up with is a really cool man and not God. You end up with a really cool human person. Now, we've looked at some ideas of God that are common in today's culture and even in antiquity. However, what if God isn't a social construct subject to time? What if he's not subject to circumstance and perception as the social construct theory would have us believe? What if God isn't an unknowable being subject only to the noumenal realm per cant? What if he's just as he says he is by means of his condescending self-revelation of himself in time and space reality as the Bible would have it? What if God's description of himself to us in scripture is right and true? It's that conception of God which we'll turn our attention to now. In the book that I referenced earlier, My Idea of God, Princeton theologian J. Gresham Machen pens a chapter called My Idea of God. And by choosing that title, I think Machen was punking the editors, just sort of, you know, sure, I'll, I'll take your title, My Idea of God, why not? Well, he appeals to the book's title uh, when he writes his chapter. And this is what he says in his opening paragraphs on pages 39 and 40. My idea of God, J. Gresham Machen, Princeton Theological Seminary. If my idea of God were really mine, if it were one which I had evolved out of my own inner consciousness, I should attribute very little importance to it myself and should certainly expect even less importance to be attributed to it by others. 
If God is merely a fact of human experience, if theology is merely a branch of psychology, then I, for my part, shall cease to be interested in the subject at all. The only God about whom I can feel concerned is the one who has objective existence, an existence apart from man. But if there be such a really an independently existent being, it seems extremely unlikely that there can be any knowledge of him unless he chooses to reveal himself. A divine being that could be discovered apart from revelation would either be a mere name for an aspect of man's nature, the feeling of reverence or loyalty or the like, or else, if possessing objective existence, a mere passive thing that would submit to human investigation like the substances that are analyzed in the laboratory. And in either case, it would seem absurd to apply such a being to the name, to such a being the name God. A really existent God then, if he be more than a merely passive, if he be more than merely passive, if he be a living God, can be known only through his revelation of himself. And it's extremely unlikely that such revelation should have come to me alone. I reject, therefore, the whole subjectivizing tendency in religion that is so popular at the present time and a hundred years later. The whole notion that faith is merely an adventure of the individual man. On the contrary, I am on the search for some revelation of God that has come to other men as well as to me and that has come into human life, not through a mere analysis of human states of consciousness, but distinctly from the outside. Such revelation I find in the Christian religion. The idea of God, therefore, which I shall here endeavor to summarize, is simply the Christian idea. Um, that's sort of classic Machen. Um, now, the idea that Machen adheres to is the one we'll unpack today. Now, notice even in Machen's speech, it's not because Machen, right? Uh, I'll be perfectly honest, Machen's one of my personal heroes. He's a great guy. Uh, my favorite question I asked a, a specialist on Machen was, so tell me, was Machen a jerk? Um, but, uh, and his answer was he didn't think so. Uh, but just a fascinating character, right? He's one of my favorite people, but let's be clear. Uh, this is not hagiography, it's not hero worship, it's not, you know, making some impossible view of a saint. Um, Machen is tapping into the idea that this is the universal revelation of God received by the church Catholic through all ages. And when I say Catholic, of course, here, I'm referring to the universal church, and we'll unpack that a little bit. Uh, I want you to appreciate when we look at this today that this is a pretty vanilla Christian understanding of God. Certainly as we unpack the catechism, there's very much reformed distinctives. This is not that place. Now, some will say, well, Machen, you're just unpacking the Orthodox Protestant view of God. Don't let them get away with that. There are plenty of examples of division within the body of Christ that need work towards mending for sure, but this is not one of them. This is the vanilla Catholic and universal uh, teaching. I read something recently about how we should stop using vanilla to describe plain. I guess creation of vanilla is pretty, pretty special, pretty intense. Well, in the same way, and I didn't think about this earlier, uh, the doctrine of God that we find is pretty amazing unpacked in Scripture 
And whether you are a Christian of Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or Protestant perspective, we have all confessed this definition of God. And that brings us to Shorter Catechism number four. You got it in your handout, I believe, I hope. Did I not put it in there? All right, here we go. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Our catechism in summarizing scripture tells us that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Now, we can only know God as he reveals himself to us. If he did not reveal himself to us, we would find ourselves in the same boat as Simonides. If he did not reveal himself to us, these are probably reasonable conclusions, right? But actually, he does. And it's not just that he reveals himself to us as 21st century Protestants in a converted, uh, you know, warehouse. No, this is something the early church wrestled with. A good deal of this doctrine of God is handed over from the Jews, right? We're talking centuries. We're talking millennia in terms of this view of God. It is not something that is just a social construct cooked up, or even a social construct cooked up long ago and reaffirmed. Every age wrestles with these questions, and Christians come to the same conclusion. Now, God has revealed himself to us, who he is in the scriptures. We can know him well enough to be saved and to enter into his kingdom. We can know his will for us. As we look into this, though, we must remember that the goal of knowing God is to worship and praise him, to glorify and enjoy him. It's not to understand him or classify him fully as though he were a frog and we were dissecting him in a high school table. No. We understand who God is as we have relationship with him. He's the creator. We are the creatures. We will never understand God as he is in his own being. Only God can know himself in that way. So we can't know God's being, but we can know his attributes. Our catechism answer today is saturated with the attributes of God. Spirit, infinite, unchangeable, etc. These are the attributes of God. The Bible tells us about God's attributes as it tells us about who he is for us. We must be careful here, though. We can't take one of God's attributes and say, well, God is fundamentally this, right? Common amongst evangelicals to want to say that God is fundamentally love. Is God love? Yes, absolutely. But he's not only love, right? In our own camp, sometimes Reformed people we like to say, well, God is fundamentally sovereign, right? Now, God is sovereign, and we should go to the bat for that, just as we should go to the bat for the fact that God is love. But if we go ahead and we take one attribute of God, we're breaking him into parts, right? And God is simple. You can't break God into parts or passions. God is all of his attributes all of the time. He can't be dissected into parts. And we call this, of course, divine simplicity, as I mentioned earlier. With that said, we're going to look at the attributes of our glorious God. Now, traditionally, we've taken these attributes and we've broken them up into two categories, okay? 
the communicable attributes of God and the incommunicable. And I just stated those in reverse order. It doesn't really matter, but we're going to start with incommunicable attributes today. Yeah, let's jump into this. Um, well, now, when we say incommunicable attributes, we're saying these are the things that God does not communicate to his creature. God does not share his glory with another in terms of, you know, his divine being or essence. For example, some examples of incommunicable attributes. Only God is eternal. Only God doesn't have a birthday, right? Uh, only God doesn't have an expiration date. Communicable attributes, of course, are those that he has shed on angels and man as the image of God. Angels and man as the image of God. Not saying angels are image of God. So let's look at these. And we're going to unpack some sort of proof text. We're going to hit this pretty quick. Um, John 4.24, referring to God as spirit, right? John 4.24, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. 1 Timothy 6.15 and 16, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone his immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, and whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be all power and uh, dominion and glory. I'm trying to figure out why I quoted that for spirit. Maybe I pulled a Burke off. Uh, sometimes authors, uh, and me as well apparently, uh, will we'll cite something and not know why we were pointing it. Uh, oftentimes what I discover when that happens in your Bible study time is you're just not there yet. And later you're like, oh, I understand why that's a proof text now. Um, but we'll skip that one. Uh, Luke 24:39. This is that passage where it's, you know, it's so-called doubting Thomas. See my hands and my feet, that it's I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. We see from these passages that God is spirit. He does not have a body. Uh, so if you're Mormon friends, you know, who some of their dogma is, what is it? As God is, man once, no, no. As man is, God once was. As God is, man may become, right? Uh, no, there's none of that. God is a spirit. The eternally existent God that exists in three persons is non-corporeal, does not have corpus, of course, until the incarnation. So a good question to ask is, why does the Bible often speak of God's mouth, God's finger, his hands, his mighty and outstretched arm? The Bible even talks about God having wings, right? Now, the Bible, of course, is speaking to us figuratively in ways that we understand. Remember I said earlier, God's revelation to us is revelation for us, for people that are finite and not eternal to grasp what's going on, okay? Psalm 91.4, classic passage. Uh, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. He protects us. Now, beloved, it needs to be said, God doesn't have wings. God is not the almighty chicken. But he's communicating to us God's care and covering over his covenant people. And I challenge you to find a more intimate, beautiful, caring picture than that. God always speaks to us in ways that we can understand. Now, let's be honest. Some parts of Scripture are hard to understand. 
And I think our confession nails it when it says that, you know, by the right use of means, we can grow in our appreciation for what Scripture teaches. That is, you need to study, right? And maybe it's a good time to pause for a second. Uh, you often hear from young people, I don't understand what you're saying. Why are you using these words, right? Hey, you go... <laughs> um, if you sit down with somebody who's really up on recent gender identity issues and you listen to them talk, holy cow, you want to talk about something you can't understand that's a whole new vocabulary based on studies. So they got it in the tank to study, okay? They do. You ask someone about their favorite video game or something they're interested in, they know it, okay? Now, it is the job of the church to be comprehensible, to present Christ and Him crucified clearly. And I'm guilty, sometimes I'm not as clear as I could be. But let's be honest, the right use of means, applying yourself to the study of scriptures, is a prerequisite for a Christian, okay? Doesn't mean we all have to have master's degrees in some study, philology, or something, no. But we do need to study God's word. Okay. Calvin, I think I mentioned this a couple classes ago, uh, Calvin compares God's speech to us as a mother or father who chews the baby's food and places it in her mouth. Well, that's the idea God is a spirit. Uh, Second idea I want to look at is, uh, you know, that's the first thing catechism says in terms of attributes, God is a spirit. But then it says he's infinite. And when we talk about infinity, we're talking about God being beyond bounds. There's nothing outside his own nature that contains him in any way. He's free from the limitation of all confinements. All that God is, he is unlimitedly. And so when we talk about God's infinity, in terms of space, right? 1 Kings 8.27 says, But God will indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built, right? So when we talk about the uh, infinity of God in terms of space, we're saying he's omnipresent. He's present everywhere, right? There's no place you can go to hide from the Holy One of Israel. God's infinite or beyond bounds in terms of his understanding. Psalm 147.5 Great is our Lord, and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. We're saying that there's no limitations on God's understanding. He's omniscient. He's omni, all, seeant, right? Like science, knowledge. He knows everything. Uh, I apologize as I parse probably Latin roots. I'm awful at these things. Okay, uh, in terms of his power, God is infinite in terms of his power. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, it's you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great powers and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Right? So God's power has no limits, right? We call this omnipotent. He has all power. He's also uh, infinite in terms of time. Psalm 92 says, Before the mountains were brought forth... Or ever you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, it's a good reminder of, as humans, how small we are. When we study geology, right, uh, it's just so fascinating to think about geological time, right? And I don't want to get into the young earth, old earth debate here, but regardless which view you take on those things, it takes a long time for the earth to do things, right? And it shows how small we are. Um, well, the psalmist goes back of that, not just, you know, the hills being formed by plate tectonics and all that stuff, but even before you formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, we're saying God is eternal, right? And this all-powerful God of the Bible 
Scripture tells us, is unchangeable. He doesn't change. He's not subject to this, okay? He exists outside of creation, and he's static in his being. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. <laughs> right? That, that's a, what a promise. You're not consumed because of my everlasting, non-changing nature. Right? Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. This is good news for us because God will always keep his covenant promises. He's not fickle. It's not he loves me, he loves me not. God has placed his everlasting love upon his church, and he will see that you are redeemed. Jeremiah 33, 20-21, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so the day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David my servant may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. God is not fickle like a male or female lover. When you doubt God's love for you, go out and take a look at the sun. Go out and take a look at the moon. Don't look at the sun too long directly, but look at it. That creation covenant that God made that the day and the night will come to pass until a final day, it's there. God's love for you is more sure than the facts that the constellations do their dance. Now, another thing that we could say about this general category of God being infinite or beyond bounds, oopsie, this is a different category. Um, I just want to throw out the idea that uh, our God exists apart from creation and doesn't need it or us, okay? When Mark taught us on, uh, I, it's been a while, it was a Doctrine of God class, um, he introduced us the idea of aseity, right? There's this idea that, you know, there's ah, from, and then say, self, right? God is of and from himself, right? He doesn't need us. He doesn't depend on us. He doesn't depend on us to think him up, right? Uh, no, John 5, 26 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. God doesn't need you, but we need him. So those are the incommunicable attributes, and I just want to throw out the idea that we don't have access to that. Now, it's true we are spirit, right? That's something communicable, but not in the sense that God is. We're going to look at the, the attributes of God that he communicates to us. And these attributes that God shares are, are the attributes that God shares with mankind, but mankind does not possess these attributes in the same way that God does. So God is perfect, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all of his attributes. And we're neither perfect, infinite, eternal, or unchangeable. So first we'll look at wisdom. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. God is infinitely wise. Now, we can be wise, but not wise like God is wise. Holiness. 1 John 1.5, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you 
that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 1 Peter 1.16, since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. God is infinitely holy and he calls us to be holy. Now notice as we look at these uh, uh, communicable attributes of God, we've said, you know, there's God and there's creation, right? Um, that these communicable attributes do break down to us. Right? But we are not in the same way, right? It's a reflective glory. Remember we looked at Shorter Catechism number one and we said that by chief end is glorify God, enjoy him to forever. The idea is it's like the reflection of a sun to the moon. The moon reflects the glory of the sun, but the moon doesn't have its own reflective mojo power. There's not a generator on there with a bunch of halogen beams, right? It's a reflector on the back of your bike. That's what we are. We reflect his glory in his communicable attributes. We have wisdom. We are holy. How about just? Genesis 18, 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. And that's the account with Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? God is just or righteous, and he's called us to be just. Good. Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Matthew 5.45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God is good. He calls us to reflect his goodness. And lastly, true. The last attribute listed in the catechism is true. Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. John 14.6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God is truth, and he calls upon us to speak the truth in love. So we've looked at sort of the uh, incommunicable attributes, which are wrapped up in the being of God alone. But then there's also the communicable attributes, which are wrapped up in the being of God. But he shares with us because we're made in his image to reflect his glory in knowledge and righteousness and holiness, truth, etc. Well, my opening argument today was that our theology influences our ethics. We've seen a couple things by looking at the scriptural data that the Shorter Catechism number four unpacks. We're reminded of our reflective glory. We're to glorify God and enjoy him forever just as the moon reflects the light of the sun. We reflect God's moral excellencies revealed in his communicable attributes. Also, there are some things that are off limits for us. God is God, we are not, okay? We're not part of the Godness. We're separate, right? Uh, we live our lives in reference to him. If you want to live an ethical life, a couple things you should do, and this takes us to the beginning of Calvin's Institutes. Know yourself, which I think is kind of universally attested uh, in, in philosophy, right? The Greeks, know yourself. Uh, but Calvin also says know God, right? And there's sort of this interesting dialectic or this interplay between these two themes, knowing yourself and knowing God. In Calvin's book, it's not the sort of self-help, know yourself, understand who you are, find your true self and all that stuff, and 
go into debt while doing it and studying things that are meaningless. That was mean. Um, it's not that sort of know yourself. Um, the know yourself Calvin is talking about is as we see who we are and we can see glimpses of knowledge, righteousness, justice, holiness, and truth, we can see those, but also as we see ourselves, there's this universal thing in humanity, and that is dissatisfaction. A, a lot of our political movements, a lot of our social movements at the time, a lot of this is born out of frustration because something is screwed up, right? There's so much injustice. Why are some people starving? Why are some people judged inappropriately because of the color of their skin? Why are you told that you're not even human because you have some alternative sexuality, right? These are real questions, and they're really tapping into something. And as Christians, we need to be able to, to navigate this and say, yeah, you're, you're struggling with this thing that you're knowing yourself, and you're seeing that there's something better and greater, but you don't have access to it. And of course, the answer is that access comes not from the ascent above, right? Tower of Babel, building of means, a big staircase to heaven, as it were. No, 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 no. God needs to drop down a ladder out of heaven through Jacob, right? There, there needs to be an incarnation. There needs to be revelation from outside, inside. So I just want to throw out the idea there's some things that are off limits to us. God's God. We're not. The incommunicable attributes are ones that make it so we cannot be God and make our own ethical structures. So, for your ethics, you want to understand how to live? Calvin says, well, there's no, no true knowledge of self without knowledge of God. You want to know what justice looks like? Seek after God. You want to know what righteousness and holiness looks like? You need to know God. And as we look at who God is and His magnificent holiness, we also do look back at ourselves. It's kind of like looking at the law, right? The law from the lawgiver, it exposes our sin. And we come calling for repentance. And we call that we want to grow and change and be like our Creator. That's all I got. I'll pray, and if you guys have questions, we can entertain them. Father, we give thanks that we can know you because you break through into this present evil age, showing us that you've sent a Redeemer. And Father, that you intend to make all things new. Help us to be faithful witnesses to that reality, that heavenly reality which Christ has accomplished for us. We love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark. This isn't a question, but just to append to your lesson. It's impossible to know God unless we receive that new nature which you suggested by God coming down to us. So that is a mercy that God gives to us. And conversely, you know, Romans 1 says people are without excuse because he has revealed his invisible attributes in creation. So uh, he has revealed enough that they are held accountable and morally responsible for their lack of ethics. Thinking of, I was thinking of you as I wrote that portion. That's when I, in, in reference to Simonides, I wrote, like, we can't know God in detail. Yeah, I was like, I, I, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, we can know from creation that God exists and that we ought to praise him, but uh, we're not going to know he's Trinity. We're not going to know there's a redeemer of mankind. Just to kind of piggyback on what you were saying there, um, is that where, like, science is? And, uh, like, just, is that where science and and 
all, all the things that are being revealed to us today through, not obviously it's through general revelation, right? Is that correct? Like how we know things, like how we know nature, like how we know. Okay, who's we in this context? People. So general, unregenerate humanity, how do they know things? Well, I mean, Christians, yes. And the reason why I'm making, but also Christians know things that unregenerate people know too. So yeah, I'm talking about that instead of like the detail of God, right? Like we, we know details of God because of what he's revealed to us. But like all this, like, you know, new technology, all the, you know, sciences, I guess, that so, would all be general revelation. So I guess there could be a dance in some ways. I'm sure some, you know, there's, uh, you know, you look at a lot of early scientists in the, in the British uh, Academy, I, I'm striking out for words, um, that were obviously devoted Christians and they did these things to the glory of God, but they also used some of the same uh, methodologies at points. Um, so I don't, in general, the unregenerate man looks at things from creation, as Mark pointed out, you know, Romans 1. You know, the, what could be known about God is clear to them. You know, God has revealed himself in creation, and by digging into the earth and manipulating things and studying it, we come to much appreciation and knowledge. Uh, and there's some overlap. Just some, you know, uh, as we've mentioned in earlier studies, uh, all truth is God's truth, right? It's not like, well, this is Christian truth. And I, yeah. I love it. It's quiet. All right, guys. Uh, let's, let's pray for our, uh, our preacher today, a uh, young man named Bright. He's going to be filling the pulpit, so let's pray that God would be pleased to bless his preaching. Father, we give thanks for the gifts that you give to Christ's church and that you send ministers of the word and even young men that are aspiring to be a minister. Father, we pray for Bright as he takes on this uh, worthy calling. We pray, Father, that you would affirm to him uh, his gifts and calling, make things clear to him. We pray that your church would be explicit when they encourage him to pursue this or tell him maybe it's better to pump gas. We ask for clarity in these things. Bless him as he exhorts us from your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Nobody pumps gas anymore.